This week's episode of The Risk Equation features mature themes. There are accounts of violence, drug abuse, and other sensitive subjects. For anyone located in Australia who is seeking help for substance abuse, domestic violence, or mental health issues, search for Reach Out, White Ribbon Australia, or dial 1-800-RESPECT. A, a known informant was targeted for assassination, basically. A Russian friend of mine came and, and collected me and said, look, you, know, you won't believe what's happening on, on the wing that he was living on. He said, look, they're killing uh, the raid, the informant. Whoever had contracted the killing had brought in what they called a commie muerta, which was uh, a life sentence prisoner. A commie muerta means eat the dead. I went over to see what was happening and this guy was slumped on the floor with a pool of blood around him and, and this guy stood over him just repeatedly stabbing him. And this was on a visit day, either a Saturday or a Sunday. So there was a group of visitors, men, women, kids running through the blood and the guards just stood there watching it happen because they'd been paid off. And it was a very chilling sight. The guy stopped stabbing him halfway through after about 10 or 15 minutes. And the guy wasn't dead yet. And the guy that was doing it went back to his cell, put the knife on the table, sat there, smoked some crack, came back out of the cell and started stabbing the guy again until he was dead. And this process took about half an hour. The most frightening thing about this was that there was nowhere, no one to turn to in these prisons. This was the moment Peter Tritton's journey began. Peter was an international cocaine trafficker. He was transporting millions of dollars worth of cocaine every week and dealing with some of the UK's most dangerous people. Nicknamed Posh Pete in the UK and later Loco Pete in Ecuador, Peter's journey goes from exhilarating to dangerous to deadly in a cataclysmic 20-year journey of drugs, murder, and tragedy.
I was very young uh, when I first started going along to the, the, the raves. I remember the first one that I ever went to was actually in my hometown of Stroud. I, I have two older stepbrothers, or did at that point. One was about four or five years older than me, and he was quite heavily involved, even though he was still quite young. He was quite heavily involved in the illegal uh, rave scene as a DJ. And he also knew the older guys in my hometown that were the sort of organisers and you know, the sort of criminal underground that were organising these, these big parties. And they organised a, a big rave in the old, what was um, like a DIY centre. So went along, I think I was about 13. <laughs> and it was all quite, uh, yeah, quite spectacular. What really appealed to me, I think, was just the freedom of it all. And the fact there was no control, there were no police. Everybody seemed happy. Everybody was having a good time. And uh, in the morning, a really big, well-known DJ from Britain turned up called Mickey Finn. So from that point, I was really quite hooked. And um, I'd already sort of started dabbling with cannabis by that point. And yeah sort of realized that i could offset my my the, the sort of cost of partying at the weekends by by selling small amounts of drugs at these parties what was it like to walk into some of those illegal parties with people who were probably a fair amount older than you or at least a very mixed group of people to what you were used to and then start to establish an identity there uh, because i imagine that it, it takes a special sort of entrepreneurialism to decide to take advantage of that. I can imagine a lot of people just being overwhelmed by it, but, but you managed to find a path towards profiting from it or, or at least establishing yourself as a part of that scene. I, I mean, the entrepreneurial side of me, I, I think, has always been there. And I, I, I think that stems from, as a child, my family not really having a great deal of money. My dad was a self-employed builder and my mum was, you know, sort of... Uh, 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 homemaker, should we say? So she she didn't really have an income coming in. I remember as a kid. I mean, going back way before the the, the rave scene, uh, going around the local the village that I grew up in, washing car windscreens, and you know, doing all, all sorts of little things to create uh, money. <laughs> the path from there towards not just sort of making a little bit of extra cash on the side to offset you know, your own enjoyment at the parties, but then becoming quite central to your friends and, and your group of friends, um, uh, network of getting drugs and um, uh, building relationships that allow to facilitate that. That process seemed to escalate fairly quickly in the following years, not just sort of on a casual way, but, but in an organised way. And, and it's really, in, in some ways, it takes a great deal of... Um, uh, thought and uh, an immense amount of organisation uh, to get to that stage. And I'm just interested if you could talk us through how how you went about building that and and what it took to get to that point. Up until the age of seventeen, which is when I first got caught by the police with any sort of uh, amount of drugs, I'd more or less been a sole operator or sole trader, I suppose you could call it, just selling to friends and at the party scene, you know and. I sort of developed a little group of friends that had my back who were my age. So we'd sort of stick together and make sure we were all 
okay. When it really escalated was um, having been caught the first time at, uh, at secondary, uh, sorry, at sixth form college in Sirencester, expelled from the college but allowed to sit my exams. That sort of shook me up and I stopped. Then got um, several offers uh, at university, which I took up to read archaeology, went to Cardiff Uni, and again saw opportunity there because, um, you know, student life, everybody wants drugs. And not being that far from my hometown, I was still in contact with all my old network of, um, well, dealers and contacts for drugs. People started approaching me in Cardiff, uh, other students asking whether I could get this, that and the other, you know, cocaine, uh, ecstasy, amphetamine. Um, you know, I could. So decided to start dealing again, which probably wasn't the best idea. From there, that's when it really picked up. I quickly met some of the local dealers in Cardiff, who then introduced me to their network of dealers spread across the whole of South Wales. I then met some, some people from Bristol who were very central to the party scene in Bristol. So I then start buying large amounts of drugs on, on tick. Supplying not only the students, but also the dealers in Wales, the dealers in Bristol. So I then dropped out of uni in my second year. And I remember at one point sitting down with a couple of friends and saying, look, I've got people in most of South Wales. I've got people in the southwest of England, which is Bristol, sourcing all the drugs from London. I don't have anyone in Scotland, and I know the prices there are quite high. Try and find me a contact in Scotland. So my friends went out, got me a contact in Scotland. <laughs> so. It became a conscious decision at this point to actually spread out, enlarge the network and, you know, obviously escalate things even further. Tell me about when you were arrested the first time. I, I wouldn't say that that way actually because you had been arrested before, but I mean when you went to prison the first time in the UK. Um, tell us about the circumstances of that and, and in some ways how that came to be when you'd been, up until that point, extremely successful at what you were doing. I was selling some weeks 10 kilos of coke you know, maybe a ton of hash every couple of weeks. Just big, big, big amounts of drugs, 40 or 50,000 pills every couple of weeks. And um, um, on this particular occasion, I went to, it was the day after my girlfriend's birthday in May, my girlfriend at the time. And I went to drop some coke off at someone's house and unbeknown to me, they were under surveillance. Well, this is how the story went, anyway. So, as I've come out, I've got into the van, the transit van that I was driving, 
So I've driven off and I had this briefcase with me, locked briefcase with, I think it was about two ounces of Coke and maybe a thousand pills in there and uh, maybe some cannabis. And unfortunately for me, I had a sawn off shotgun uh, in the back of the van, broken down in, into its component parts, but I still had it on me. I've driven off from, from the drop from this guy's house and got about about five miles down the road and suddenly a police car has come screaming up behind me. A marked police car. And I thought it was going to be a routine stop and I thought, oh, I can probably get away with this. And as soon as they stopped me, they just went straight into the front of the van, straight to the briefcase, pulled it out, jimmed it open with a crowbar and were like, ha ha, we've got you. So this was obviously some sort of sting. But apparently what had happened was, like I said, unbeknown to me, I'd walked into a surveillance operation. The house had been raided as I'd left. The guy who I'd given the coat to had tried to get it down the toilet, got most of it away. But obviously the police had found coke and traces of, you know, of, well, traces of coke and bags and whatever. So they came off, came uh, up the road after me. So I get arrested and I don't know whether I was actually the target of it or not. I never really got to the bottom of that. I spent six days in the police station, went no comment for the whole time. I was held incommunicado, which means you're not allowed to have any communication with anyone for the first two or three days. I was then remanded into custody my co-defendants, because they didn't really get found with anything, were all released on bail, so I was the only, the only one remanded. And I was placed on uh, on the book, which is, well, they, they put me down as a potential Category A prisoner, which is like the highest uh, category of, of uh, prison prisoner you can, or the highest um, security category that you can get in Britain which was all a real shock. They started saying, well, we know you're connected to some really big crime families in London. This is one of the biggest busts in Gloucestershire that we've ever had. You're a massive player. They went on to find uh, in total 5,000 pills, two or three kilos of amphetamine, a few ounces of coke, a sawn off shotgun, a bolt action 2-2 rifle, loads of weapons and 600 fake pound coins, so I knew I was pretty well cooked. I mean, you know, there wasn't really any getting out of this. So after about nine months, I went guilty on, on uh, legal advice, but um, it was devastating to see the effect that it had on my family. My mum wasn't particularly well anyway, suffering from alcoholism, so it didn't help matters at all. And... The way that they dealt with me, the, the, like the, the level of security around me in the prison was just crazy. I mean, it was so invasive that all my telephone calls were recorded. I was the only potential Category A prison, prisoner in, in that prison and the first one yes. they'd had in, like, years. And I think I, I ended up spending nearly two years on remand. I was the longest remand prisoner they'd had there in 15 years. That's without a sentence. Yeah. Why do you think that took so long? Uh, the reason for that was because my, my, my co-defendants at the time, the guys that were arrested with me, uh, were released on bail. They were then, after about a year, they were caught doing something else. 
remanded into custody. They then managed to get out again on bail. So I said to them, you know, through my solicitor, I said, look, just stay out as long as you can, guys. You know what I mean? You know, I, I don't want you, I don't want to see you coming into prison. I don't mind sitting here waiting for, for, for my sentence because it's all going to come off in the end anyway. And it actually helped me indirectly because when it did come time for sentencing, I remember the judge in his summing up said that it was, uh, I can't remember exactly what he said, what he said but it was something like, along the lines of theory, it was ridiculous that I'd been sat for so long on remand when I'd gone guilty after nine months. The level of security, I mean, as an example, they would shut the... For me to get my dinner, they would shut the entire wing down and put two officers in front of me and two behind me and escort me down to the hot plate, to the kitchen, to get my dinner and then take me back to my cell, lock me in my room and I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody, no other inmates. Um, I wasn't allowed out of my cell. I wasn't allowed phone cards in my possession. All my calls were recorded. All my visits were through glass. It was just uh, really high security. When I was arrested, actually, I'd forgotten this, but um, a police officer who'd been living next door to where I was living in 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 a village called Slad. There was there was a uh, she wasn't a, a full police officer. She was like a a uh, I can't remember what they call them now. Like a, I suppose a trainee. But um, I got along fine with her. I used to play tennis with her. And when I got remanded, some of my friends who were on the outside thought that she'd been responsible for my arrest. So threatened her life, threatened to kill her. Not at my behest, I like, you know, I, I want to make clear. But um, because of that, that was one of the reasons the security was so tight around me as well, because I think they saw that I had the capability to reach out to, to witnesses very easily within the prison uh, and I mean that happened when I was incommunicado in the police station I hadn't even spoken to anyone and that happened so for that sort of level of power and, and contact I think they just thought I was some sort of master criminal I think it's something they've never forgotten as well, to be honest. The guy that did that is actually, he, he died uh, a few years later in, uh, shall we say, suspicious circumstances. There were no obvious um, causes of death, shall we say. He was just found dead in his apartment. Having gone through that, that prison sentence, it did stop me. And I don't, you know, I, when I got released, I, I decided to go straight and start my own painting and decorating company and, and try and uh, stay on the straight and narrow but that didn't last.
when you were released, you started painting and decorating and you were doing that with your father, I understand, at the time. And what was it that made you decide that it was time to, to get back into the old trade um, from where you'd been? Oddly enough, I'm writing in a second book at the moment and I was writing a chapter the other day and I mentioned, I touched upon this subject. I mean, excuse my language, but I called it the fuck it moment. You know, maybe the pressures of life start building up and your job's not going as, as you want it to and you realise you're not making as much money as you want to be and the money you're making is just covering your rent and you're not really going to ever get anywhere with it. I suppose I just got sick of it. I remember there was one particular job that the clients really annoyed me. <laughs> it was around that time they they weren't paying me, and I you know I well I didn't really need the money because I'd started doing a couple of little things anyway, and. So I just started ignoring their calls. They they started ringing me to try and pay me. So I so I just started ignoring their calls, and it really freaked them out. That's really fascinating, though, because like you were obviously extremely capable of what you'd been doing before you were arrested. In some ways, at that time, at least, if not now, it, it seemed like happenstance that you were caught. And I can imagine you coming out into a life that must have been really quite dreary and dull in comparison to what you'd been doing before, certainly from an adrenaline point of view, and being tempted back to it simply because of that sense of, well, I'm, I'm good at it. I know that that's a life that I got reward from and I have the capability now to do it differently. And, and that temptation is really fascinating to me when you just come out of prison. You know, the force of, of that sense of pursuing excellence in something you know you can do really well, even when the consequences can be so great. Life was, to some extent, a bit humdrum. And, you know, I, I was seeking that sort of adrenaline rush again, you know, the thrill of the chase and all the rest of it, and the challenge of it all. Um, and like I say, some, you know, people have started contacting me, some of my old contacts, and saying, look, you, you know, can you help us source this? Can we do this? Can we do that? You know, and temptation just starts building, and I've made that fateful phone call and said, you know, can you find me a contact in London? And the initial premise was that um, we initially went up there and started buying cocaine for uh, someone in South Wales. Uh, so it was, you know, a straightforward deal, just buying the coke from the Colombians, taking it to the guy in South Wales. But that was our way in, or my way into the Colombians. So on about the third deal i said look the real reason i'm here is because i actually i want to start importing cocaine into britain whilst i was in parkhurst i read in the sunday times newspaper about um a shipment of cocaine that had been seized in a in a in a shipping container that was impregnated into patio furniture the white plastic patio furniture sets that you get and the whole, I don't know, I, mean, I presume the whole lot had been impregnated with cocaine. And I was just like, well, that's just genius. Because you have to remember this time, 
9-11 had just happened, so all the security in all of the airports had gone through the roof. Uh, and um, loads of mules and passengers were getting caught inadvertently by customs, you know, checking for bombs, basically, and finding kilos of coke instead. I quite quickly realised that the old ways of bringing cocaine into Britain, i.e. in block or powder form, were, go were gone. Those days were coming to an end really quickly. I'd heard of methods of impregnating cocaine into, say, clothing, you know, putting it into liquid and then soaking the clothes in. But that was so basic compared to what we then started doing. Um, so on this meeting with the Colombians, I said, you know, I'm, you know, I want to start bringing cocaine into the country. And they said, well, look, <laughs> we're actually doing it already. And I was like, great. <laughs> so they said, we're, we're bringing it in in the ground sheets of tents. And I was just like, wow, that's amazing, that's so cool. And that was, yeah, hooked. Chilean. So we all sat down and we said, look, we'll form a partnership. Uh, we each sort of had our, our specific roles. Um, so I was in charge of the logistics in Britain, uh, the sale of the cocaine, the finding of passengers, and also going out to South America with the passenger and making sure that, you know, the handover was uh, done securely and, the pa and that the passenger got home safely. We would send the money over via um, Western Union and other money transfer agencies. Um, and yeah, and then the, him and the Chilean would then process the cocaine out when we, when we got it back. They soon taught me how to do that, which was uh, interesting. The logistics were pretty much that. I would, I would control uh, the British end of things. Yeah, the Colombian would make sure the tent was manufactured and, and put together, and then I would go with a passenger and collect it. I mean, I did the first one myself uh, simply because I wanted to experience the whole process of bringing it back and also so that I was in a position to be able to tell other people that I would then ask to do this for me what they might go through and what they might feel. That's a big risk for someone who's organising something of this magnitude, I would have thought, but it shows a, a, a degree of leadership as well to say that I'm going to experience it so that I know what to expect. I did want to do that because I would have felt not right sending people to do something that I hadn't done myself and just, you know. So I actually got stopped <laughs> bringing the first one back in uh, Holland. Got to Schiphol Airport and there was a row of um, anti-narcotic officers <laughs> waiting. One of them looked at, must have had a picture of me, because, you know, as soon as he saw me at the back of the queue, looked at all the other officers, he, I guess he was the one in charge, and, and you know, they weren't really interested in anyone else. <laughs> they just wanted to speak to me.
went into a room, there was about, I don't know, six or seven other people waiting. I was the only Westerner. And luckily for me, the tent was in transit, so didn't come up. And I just stayed really calm and, and cool and said, you know, I've been there on holiday, I've, been, I've done this, I've done that. And, and they let me go through. And I thought, you know, because I, I had to get another flight from Amsterdam to London. And I thought, you know, God, when I get back to London, they are really going to tear me apart. Got to London and just walked out. And I, I swear to God, I was so high on the adrenaline from that that for about probably a week. <laughs> that was what really sold the whole idea to me, was the fact that I'd actually been stopped by customs, and not only customs, drug officers, and beaten them and got past them, got it back to Britain, processed it out, you know, sold it, happy days, you've got the money. And the next thing, all I was interested in doing was the next job, really. <laughs> so at that time, obviously, the drugs enforcement were aware of the capability of traffickers to do this sort of thing, but really weren't capable of either finding the evidence or, or securing what was necessary in order to stop somebody. I, I think the system that we were using was fairly new at the time. The issue, I think that the, yeah, certainly the British, and I don't know about the Dutch, but I know the issue that the British police had was the fact that the cocaine was was now a piece of rubber. It wasn't actually cocaine anymore. So I think it, under British law at the time, they wouldn't have been able to arrest the passenger unless they had a lot of other evidence. What I would say to the passengers was, if you do get stopped, you would just get your barristers to stand up before the jury and hold up a piece of rubber and say, look, could any member of the jury tell me that this is cocaine? And not one member of that jury would say yes. That was the way we were getting passengers through. We'd, we'd never actually lost a single passenger, not one. Incredibly robust system. And when you think about it logically, it would have been extremely difficult for anybody to stop someone under those circumstances. But that means that the weakest part of the system is when you're actually extracting the cocaine. And, and what was involved in that process and setting up a lab that was capable of doing that? Because to me, that sounds like something that would require quite a footprint on the ground at the other end. That was always quite a nervous time for me. So we, we would try and find a property. I mean, I always tried to find a property outside of the city, but invariably we ended up doing it in, apart, in apartments. But we always had to have an extractor fan or a hood over the cooker with a powerful extractor fan to extract the fumes. Major part of the process is evaporating alcohols off to leave the cocaine at the end. So there's acids involved, hydrochloric acid, sulfuric acid, 99% pure alcohol, methanol, stuff like that. A lot of very toxic and explosive liquids, very flammable. <laughs> so, you know, it's always quite nerve-wracking doing that. But we had some pretty good guys, you know, Columbians that taught me how to do it. It would take three or four days to complete this process 
And I mean, that in that time, it was it was very nerve wracking, you know, waiting. We just had to get on with it. You know, you just had to deal with yourself and say, look, if, if the door comes through, the door comes through. But we would we we did everything possible to make sure that that didn't happen. I always used to make sure that everybody in the group was happy. That was a very important thing. The others would be getting paid more than I was, and I was happy about that because as long as they were happy, I knew that they wouldn't betray me. That time did come, and uh, not long after we signed. I was actually in Cali, in Colombia, uh, organising another uh, couple of tents. And the police raided a laboratory in Crystal Palace in London, captured the Colombian and the Chilean and a, and a few of their friends that were with them that shouldn't have been there, but they were. So I think about five or six people got arrested. Um, I think they found three kilos of cocaine, uh, one of the tents partially processed, precursor chemicals, a floor-standing hydraulic press for repressing the cocaine, probably cutting agent as well. So it was a mess. And unfortunately, I mean, I can understand why he did it, but the Colombian, the police managed to flip the Colombian and turned him into uh, an informant. And they did that by threatening to deport him, not only him and his girlfriend and his child, but also his parents who had been in London for years. His father was a judge, oh, sorry, had been a judge back in Colombia. So the British police really did a number on him, you know, and cracked him, broke him, released him after six months on the premise that they didn't have enough evidence on him. And we, me and a couple of other people were very suspicious about this and pretty much realised that he had been turned uh, into an informant. And I remember one, one particular evening, uh, after I think he'd only been out a couple of weeks or a week, I'd gone down to London and handed him a carrier bag with about £30,000 in cash, which was his part of the, uh, the money that I'd made whilst he was in prison. So I handed him 30 grand in cash and said, oh, welcome back. During the time he'd been in prison, I'd been paying his family's bills, his rent, everything. And, you know, he still betrayed me. And I remember on this one occasion, we went to a phone box to phone his contact in Colombia. And he broke down in tears and almost admitted to me that he'd been turned. Because I remember the conversation, you know, went to him like he was, he felt really bad about something that had happened. And, you know, I could see that he was hurting and he, he didn't feel good about the fact he'd betrayed me because, you know, I, I was being good to him. To some extent, I can understand why, why he broke, but I, I went through, you know, because of him, I ended up in prison in Ecuador and did more than 10 years out of a 12 year sentence and I didn't break. Quite the contrary. You, you're now operating an incredibly sophisticated operation with people who have been compromised 
uh, but with a system which has been quite robust in terms of being successful for you, where does that stop becoming successful and, and, and turn into a liability? We realised after a while that we were under surveillance by the British authorities. You know, because I thought the system was that good, we kept going and we kept getting, we kept beating the the British authorities. We kept bringing it in and, you know, under their noses sometimes. I think the time finally came when they took out the lab in Edinburgh and I'd been too close to that lab, really. Um, I'd been staying at the place. My sister had been staying there. She didn't know anything about what was happening. She, she'd actually, she was away uh, at the time we set a lab up there and when that lab got taken out I you know I realized that you know the game was up they were definitely going to have some sort of forensic evidence on me so I, I disappeared out of Britain got smuggled out of the country by the Turkish mafia wow. in the boot of a Mercedes car <laughs> decided God. to do one last fateful job the, you know there's always one last job uh, I mean, this was going to be the last job, and that is why the British police took me out when they did, because they knew that I was going to be in the wind after that. I knew that, you know, having fled the country, that it was only a matter of time before they caught up with me. So when I got arrested in Ecuador doing this last job, I was kind of relieved because I thought, well, you know, I'm in South America. Had I been arrested in England, I would have been in maximum security, undoubtedly, having been uh, a Category A prisoner the first time round, the second time round, and for, for a huge case, I was undoubtedly going to be full high security treatment. So I was glad, to some extent, that I got arrested in South America, and I thought, you know, South America is easy to escape from, it's corrupt. I should be able to get out of here within six months, maximum a year. Uh, by either bribing the judges or escaping or bribing the guards. You know, I had quite a lot of money around me at that time. And, yeah, that just never happened. <laughs> Peter, I want to um, just wind back a little for a second and just talk to you about uh, Nikki and Emily. Nikki is the name you use in your, in your book for your girlfriend at the time and her daughter Emily, who I think was 15, when you uh, went to France and escaped from Britain. And I just want you to talk a little bit about um, your relationship with Nikki at the time, how long you guys had been together and about the day that you were arrested because she played quite a large role in, in the weeks that were to come after that. We'd been together since um, 1998, I think it was sometime around then, 98, 99 maybe. Um, and I got arrested in 2005. And um, she was arrested with me in Ecuador, having only arrived there that day. I'd actually asked her to come out to Ecuador for a holiday because I hadn't really seen much of her, you know, my being on the run in France. So I'd said to her, look, I've, you know, I've got some business I've got to do in Ecuador. Why don't you come out? I'll, I'll get the business concluded and then you can spend a couple of weeks with me traveling around Ecuador. And she landed and we'd been out to dinner and as we were on the way back uh, to the hotel room, 
as we approached the door of the hotel room, uh, armed police came screaming down the corridor, or balaclavas on, and arrested both of us. And, yeah, we were taken into custody by Interpol, and obviously at the behest of the British authorities. I mean, obviously it was a hugely traumatic experience for her. And, you know, she'd left her daughter behind in England to come and see me. And, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, luckily, I managed to get her out of the prison in Ecuador after, I think it was after about three or four months. Um, but, I mean, the damage was done. I reassured her from the, from the outset that I was going to do everything I could to get her out, you know, and not to worry that it wasn't her that was the target, it was me. And, you know, she was, she didn't, she hadn't had, she hadn't had anything to do with it anyway. So, you know, try not to worry. Um, and, you know, I just reassured her as much as I could that I would, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, get her out of prison um, there, which I did. I had advised her not to go back to Britain because I knew the British police would target her because of her, just, just the fact she was my partner. Um, so I'd said, look, um, go to Barcelona where I'd arranged an apartment for her to stay in. Uh, we were going to bring her daughter from Britain to Spain. And I was hoping that she would go there and just sit it out and, and wait to see what happened with the case in England from a distance. But instead of that... And I mean, kind of rightly, because she was innocent and she thought in her mind, you know, I am innocent, I've not done anything wrong. You know, why should the British police arrest me? Me having been through the system, I was aware of how they operate and I knew they would target just out of spite if anything, if nothing more. So on her return to England, she was arrested and subsequently sentenced to 13 years in prison. Something that, that you know, is still weighs heavily on me to the, uh, till this day. I mean, the British police did fabricate evidence against her. Said that she'd every said that every time she'd been on holiday, either with me or when I'd sent her on holiday with her daughter, that she'd been carrying drugs back for me. And never once did I send her to bring drugs back for me. I had a multitude of passengers doing that for me. Why would I use my girlfriend? I've bumped into her once uh, in my hometown after I got released, uh, just walking uh, down the street and just having to pass her. And we said hello, but that was it, and that's the last time I spoke to her. in Ecuador, you went through a number of centres but eventually uh, were placed in, uh, in a prison in Quito. And can you please just tell me a little bit about how that prison operated and what it was like to be taken there for the first time and to experience the culture that was within that place? Peter Tritton's journey continues in part two, 
coming next week. In the meantime, to learn more about Peter, visit the Risk Equations Instagram page, where exclusive video from the interview will be featured, along with pictures and other means to stay up to date. Until next week, thanks so much for listening.